I'm all set. I'm set and ready to go. Ready to get into the book of Revelation tonight. Chapter 11. But before we do, got a couple of quick announcements to make. Um, trying to make sure this thing stays where it's supposed to stay. Okay. <clears throat> Those of you who may know uh, Charles Meadow is here just about every service. Uh, his mom passed away this week, and uh, there's going to be a, a service, I believe, tomorrow at 7 next door here at uh, uh, Mount Carmel. And uh, then I think on, uh, that's tomorrow night at 7 p.m. And then on Friday morning, I think there's a little service again next door at Mount Carmel uh, at, um, I think it's at 10. Is it, it is at 10? Okay. At 10 o'clock a.m. on Friday. So if any of you want to go and pay your respects to the family, uh, you may, may do so. If you have any questions, just let, check with us afterwards or, or call the office tomorrow. Okay. And uh, then I just want to continue to encourage you, if you're still kind of lingering from not sending your stuff to Inspire Travel about the trip to Israel in March, just encouraging you. We'll be encouraging you for a while, but <clears throat> try to get you to get going on all of that stuff there. Okay. And, um, oh, by the way, it is not, okay, so I don't want to throw anybody off now, but it is not this coming weekend that we have our night of worship. And you're saying, why are you telling us? Because now we're going to have it in our heads and we're really going to show up. No, we're going to tell you on Sunday. Also, it's not the Sunday of the night of worship. It's the following week, the following weekend. Um, I guess it's the first, uh, Sunday the first, that we'll be having our night of worship. It's Labor Day weekend, so most of the time, Mondays, you know, you know, unless you really have to work, most people don't work on Mondays. And <clears throat> So we're going to have a real night of, uh, of worship, uh, a wonderful time, 4.30, we're going to come together and have a potluck fellowship. We're going to encourage you not to eat too much uh, on Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, so that you can come and, and you know, Get ready to eat uh, together with everybody. And the, the, the thing we're going to do is we're going to do it in here. We're going to set up the tables in the sanctuary so we can all be together. Because we usually were over there in about three different rooms and everybody's going in and out the hallway. And, but everything's going to be in here. And then when we're done, we're all going to help clean up and kind of get everything out of the way so that uh, as soon as it's 6 o'clock, we're going to get right into the time of worship and you'll have tables there. Uh, I don't want you to... Dance on the tables or get weird. There are, I'm really thankful now we don't have any chandeliers because some people would probably want to, you know, swing on them. But uh, let's get excited about getting together to worship the Lord on, on that, that night. But that's not this weekend. It's the following weekend, okay? So I'm just letting you, letting you know about that. And we're already really looking forward uh, to that wonderful time. Revelation chapter 11. <clears throat> By the way, are there any school teachers in here? Raise your hand. School teachers, raise your hand. Okay, praise the Lord. Uh, we're praying for you because school just started, right? For the most part, if you're in Socorro, you already started a while back, but not too long ago. And, uh, you know, we, we just thank the Lord for you, especially if you're in public school uh, teaching because uh, they really need you as Christian teachers to let your light so shine before men. Let your light shine before those kids. Let your light shine before your colleagues, before the parents, before the administrations, because you are the light of the world. 
And God has chosen you to be there to keep that light available because what is going on in the public schools today, anything that is stamped with the government, you know, we're seeing a lot of, lot of changes going on in our society today, and that's one of the major changes, one of the major things that have happened is that really, I mean, it's been happening since 1960 when they took prayer out of the schools and they've done everything they can to try to take the mention of God out of the schools, not even let Christian groups meet, even though, praise the Lord, Christian groups are meeting in schools, support them, pray for them. Youth for Christ is one of them. Uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, I think sometimes in some campuses is around too. Pray for these groups because... uh, I mean, what we're talking about in in the book of Revelation, I mean, it is happening now. And uh, the Lord is coming soon. So we really really pray for you. I'll mention you all because this weekend we're going to pray for all the teachers in in all the congregations this weekend, the three services. And we'll be praying for you guys. But I just want want to mention to, to everyone here, don't forget to pray for all of our Christian teachers and also our Christian teachers in Christian schools. Very important that we don't forget them in this too. Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 is what I'm going to read to you. We might not get there. Well, yeah, we will. We will. We will. But uh, this is uh, one of the toughest chapters in all of the Bible. It is certainly the toughest chapter to understand in the book of Revelation. You might think it's all hard to understand. Well, it is, but this is the hardest uh, chapter. We'll talk about that a little bit in just a moment. But um, John, in chapter 10, after the six trumpet judgments have been revealed and sounded, has now had a, there's this pause before the seventh. As there was a pause after the sixth seal was broken, and there was a pause in preparation for something greater to happen. In this case, something more ominous, as it were, because of the judgments taking place. And it was at this time that this angel came down and, and, uh, or came to Uh, John with a little book and we saw that last time that he ate the book it's it's the the symbol of the word of God that we take in the word of God it's sweet to us but in our stomachs it's bitter because it's you know we have to give it out we have to tell people about Jesus we have to tell them what's going to be happening in these last days and it's bitter many times to the people who are are hearing the gospel Uh, as a matter of fact a lot of people don't even want to hear it but, uh, you know, we're, we're still called to live out the life of Jesus in our lives and tell people about the Lord. So it's important that that continues. But as we get into chapter 11, the pause is still going on because it, it isn't until chapter 11, verse 15, that we see, the, we see the seventh trumpet blown or sounded, introducing the third woe. We've already gone through two. But here, here's something interesting that takes place. And we begin with verse 1 that says, Then I was given a reed. This is John speaking. I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, same angel that we met in chapter 10. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, 
and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. So yes, what does all of that mean? I don't know if you can see that real good, but that's kind of a picture of representing chapter 11. There is that temple, and then there are the two witnesses, which we'll get to in this chapter as well, and the symbolism that is tied into the two witnesses. So the chapter that we will begin studying tonight is admittedly a very difficult one. Joseph A. Seiss was the author of one of the great commentaries on the book of Revelation entitled The Apocalypse. He calls this chapter one of the most difficult in the whole apocalypse. William Barclay says this chapter is at one and the same time the most difficult and the most important chapter in the Revelation. So if you have read it and if you have studied it for any amount of time, you know for yourself that conclusions cannot be arrived at hurriedly. Conclusions cannot be arrived at hastily. And I'm just telling you that because we're not going to come to any conclusions too much in the first couple of weeks that we're going to study this chapter. And yes, it's going to take us a little while so that we can understand it. And a lot of prayer and a lot of study are going to be required, both by me and by you, I hope. But we cannot be discouraged and we cannot be dissuaded by its difficulty. You know, because sometimes we see something difficult in the Bible and we just pass over it. (laughs) But we can't do that here. But again, we cannot be discouraged by the difficulty of this chapter. We need to press on in our pursuit of understanding these great prophecies. Now, because the language of this chapter, you will see, is going to be noticeably and predominantly Jewish. I know it's written in Greek. But the language, when I talk about the language of something being Jewish, it is the mindset of John. John who was Jewish. John who knew Hebrew. Speaks in the Hebrew mindset the things that he is not only seeing, but also the things that he is doing as he is commanded by the Lord through the angel. So because of this, I want to begin by focusing our attention on a daily prayer of faithful Jews throughout the world. And this is the prayer that even many of these faithful Jews are praying today. They are saying, may it be acceptable to the eternal God, our God and the God of our fathers, that the sanctuary, now that word is dealing with the temple. That's Jewish. All right. May it be acceptable to the eternal God, our God and the God of our fathers, that the sanctuary may be rebuilt speedily in our days and our portion assigned us in thy law. There we will serve thee in reverence as of old in bygone days. There is no temple today. There is a place where a temple stood. And it's called the Temple Mount. Those of you who have been to Israel and those of you who are going to Israel have either experienced it or will experience it in days to come. 
the Temple Mount. On that Temple Mount today, of course, is a building called the Dome of the Rock. It has a gold, it's gold-plated dome. It's the first thing you see when you drive into the city of Jerusalem. You come out of a tunnel in the the bus that we drive, and and we're told to look to the left as we're coming through this tunnel. And when the sun hits it just right, and we usually get there right in the late afternoon when the sun is just about going down, but it just shines that light on that dome. And to some extent you see the glory of the old city of Jerusalem. But it's a Muslim building. A few yards ahead of it, on the other side, probably, let's see, I'm not trying to know, to the south side of it, is a mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Kind of a gray, ugly look, well, that's not ugly, but it's kind of gray building, you know, gray dome, doesn't shine like the other one. That's what's on there. In between there is this park-like location that just has trees in it. People walk through there when, when you're allowed to go. We have been on the Temple Mount before, but sometimes they don't allow you to go on. And right now, because the Palestinian Authority is kind of overseeing what's on the Temple Mount, they haven't allowed anybody to go up to see it. So this is what's happening on the Temple Mount in old Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, within the walls of the gates of the city. But we know a little bit about the history because we talk about it quite a bit, but the Jewish people came back into the land in 1948. After having been dispersed for almost 2,000 years, or at least 1,950 years, uh, dispersed after 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and scattered all of the, Christ, all of the Jews people, I should say, from there. So, 1948, the Jewish people come back into the land, and once again, once again, they become a nation. Now, this is significant. It is significant because the Bible talks about it. And it reminds us of God's people and God's promises to God's people. And then in 1967, for the first time in 1,897 years, the Jews recaptured the old city of Jerusalem because even though they were back in the land the Jordanians controlled the area of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount especially but all of the old city of Jerusalem it was in Jordanian captivity or Jordanian hands as it were so in 1967 was a six-day war And that was when the Jews recaptured the old city of Jerusalem and they took control of that area known as the Temple Mount. And here is a picture of, uh, uh, back in 1967, of the uh, Jewish forces coming into the Temple Mount. That is the Dome of the Rock Mosque. It's not really a mosque, but it's the Dome of the Rock. And they're entering in to take control of it now. That is a rabbi there in the middle blowing a shofar, the ram's horn, 
in one hand, and in the other hand he's holding a scroll of the Hebrew Scriptures. We don't know which passage. Probably could have been the book of Isaiah, but uh, in any event, there he is, blowing the shofar. Now after capturing the old city after the Six-Day War, <clears throat> Moshe Dayan, the person in the center there with the eye patch, he was, of course, the leader of the, of the, of the Jewish uh, army, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, that captured and recaptured the city of Jerusalem. The person to his, uh, to our left here, in the, uh, I have a pointer here, don't I? Let's see if it works. That person there, that's Itzar Rabin. So just in case you wanted to know, <laughs> one of the leaders in Israel over the, the last many, many years. Okay, so anyway, Moshe Dayan gave the Temple Mount back to the Arabs to oversee. Now, I, I need to interject this because a lot of people say, why did he give it back? I mean, we, you, we, we, you've got the city, take hold of it, I mean, it's yours. He gave it back. We really don't know. There's a lot of political issues involved, but one thing is more important. They gave it back because it's part of Bible prophecy. There's some biblical pro prophetic things that are, that are happening here. So don't get mad at him for doing that. He's dead, by the way, so it's not going to matter if you get mad at him or not. But, it, you know, the fact of the matter is it was done, and yet when you look at Scripture, you realize it had to be done. So we won't deal with all of the implications, political or otherwise, for that. Because even though it belonged to the Jews, as far as the city and, 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 and even the Temple Mount, it continues to cause trouble, doesn't it? The Temple Mount continues to cause trouble as zealous Jews desire and they plan to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. That's another thing that we learn when we go to Israel, is that there is a group there called the, the Temple Institute, and, and they're very orthodox Jews that, that just, uh, uh, they're zealous to rebuild the temple. So they have made all, all of the, the implements, all of the instruments, all of the things that are used in temple worship. Even going to the, the extent of, of preparing for sacrifices once again, because they want that temple to be rebuilt. And so we go to the Temple Institute and they give us a wonderful little presentation about all the things that they've built and they don't let you take pictures, so I will show you, but they don't let you take pictures. Uh, but if I had bought the pictures, I could show them to you, but I, I, didn't, I didn't buy it. Okay. Anyway, as we move into Revelation chapter 11, we are continuing, as I said, in a parenthetical portion of the book. And John is filling in some of the details that will happen during the tribulation period before he tells us what the third woe or the seventh trumpet is all about, which he will begin in verse 15, as I said earlier as well. But before John reveals further judgments, he is going to share with us what he has given. And he's given the task of measuring a temple. And then he will tell us of the two witnesses of God that are around at least through the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now this is where the perplexing nature of the text begins. And one of the reasons many find this section difficult is that they try to spiritualize or take these verses symbolically instead of interpreting the section literally. There's one commentator who places very little importance, if any, 
on the rapture of the church, and even less on the place of the nation of Israel, or the place that the nation of Israel has in Bible prophecy. And he says outright that, uh, that this, much of this chapter, that must, much of this chapter, especially verses 1 through 13 of chapter 11, must be seen as symbolic, saying that the spiritual temple, see, he's spiritualizing the temple here, saying that the spiritual temple is the church, and it will be preserved because it was sealed in chapter 7, even though it will be subjected, and I quote, subjected to physical oppression as the Gentiles trample on it. Okay, well, either they're sealed or they're not. Well, that's one question that we'd have to ask when you spiritualize something. And the other is, are you sure it's the church? Because the church is not mentioned after chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. It is not mentioned. Now, we have mention of tribulation saints. They're not called the church. There is a distinction to be made. And the reason for the distinction is that if we follow through with Scripture, Old New Testament prophets and apostles, there is an event before the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth called the rapture of the church. I'm not going to go into it again, but we talked about it many, many times throughout the beginning of our study of the book of, of Revelation, through the, through the third and fourth chapters, we talked about it. But if you think the church is here, then it causes a lot of problems in identifying what's going on. And when these things go on. So he sees the church as sealed, and yet they're going to suffer some kind of phys- uh, physical oppression, which, you know, it doesn't sound so bad when you put it as physical oppression. But if you read all of the judgments that are going on, and then you think about the fact that the saints of that time are going to be not only persecuted, but many of them are going to be killed for their faith in Christ. We better examine then who this is. Or is this temple a real temple or is it just symbolic of the church? Now I want you to turn to Revelation 13 verse 7. So go two pages over. For some of you it's two pages. For some of you it's one page in your Bibles. But go to chapter 13 and look at verse 7. And I want you to look at the word right in the middle of that passage as you see it up here on the, on the screen. It was granted to him... And this is dealing, of course, with the, uh, you know, the Antichrist, the beast, and all. And we'll, of course, study it when we get there. But it said, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Now, now, now underline, if you don't underline it with a pen or a, a marker, in your mind at least, underline that word overcome. To overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay, now that's important for you to to see. War with the saints and to overcome them. 
Now the problem lies with that word overcome. Now I want you to listen to what Jesus told Peter back in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 when they were at Caesarea Philippi and they were looking at that humongous rock and and Jesus is now establishing uh, the understanding of the church and and it says and also said I also say to you that you are Peter speaking to Peter and on this rock I will build my church he speaks to Peter who is who's named Petros P-E-T-R-O-S which means little stone he says I say to you that you are Peter little stone and on this rock using the rock as, as a symbol or a, 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 some significance of a greater rock than he, he used the word Petra. On this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church. Yet you go back to the other verse, it says that the saints will be overcome. Now that's why the words are so important here. Let's go back to Matthew there, okay. The word overcome in Revelation 13 is the Greek word nikao, N-I-K-A-O, nikao. As a matter of fact, that's where we get the word Nike, for those of you that are wearing those shoes. Nike, but it comes from the word nikao which actually means to conquer or to prevail against or over. To conquer or to prevail against or over. So he has been given, going back over to that, he was granted to make war with the saints and to overcome them, to conquer them and to prevail against them. Got it? Jesus said, but as far as the church is concerned, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So there's a problem right there. If we think that the, the church is in Revelation 13, or even in Revelation 10, or even in Revelation 11, or even in Revelation 4, or even in Revelation 5, or 6, or 7, or 8, or 9, or 10, 11, 12, 13. church isn't here. It's been taken away, taken out, taken home. Now the word in prevail, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you because the word here in prevail is a, is a different Greek word. It is the word katiskuo, but it has the exact same meaning as nikau. The exact same meaning. You can look it up and you see to conquer or to prevail against or over. Same meaning, just a different word, probably used it just in a different way, but it, it just means the same thing. And so the saints spoken of in Revelation 13 cannot be the church, but they are again the tribulation saints, which we have spoken of before as those saved during the tribulation period. You know, they, they, they entered into the tribulation period, they, they may have gone to church, but they didn't believe, and now they're believing because they realize everything they, they learned about the tribulation period is true. And so they come to the Lord, but they come to the Lord knowing that they have to take a stand because they know that they might lose their lives for being believers during that time. 
And as we've also seen before from the scriptures, the church or the bride of Christ is taken up to be with the Lord before the tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel begins, the the last seven years. So thus the best guideline then to follow in interpreting this section of Revelation is to take each fact literally unless you get to something that has some symbolic meaning as we have already done so with certain beasts that are mentioned and, and, uh, and, and whatnot like, like the locusts and we have to kind of consider that and yet there could be real locusts too. So you have to start with what is called the literals and then you have to determine whether you're dealing with literal or symbolic. We cannot say that this is symbolic because there is a Jerusalem, there is an Israel, and there is a temple that is being expected to be built in the near future. So we can accept that a literal temple in Jerusalem will be built. There is a desire for it. And I do have to say this. Because of the condition of the people's heart in Israel, not all of them are devout. Not all of them are orthodox. Not all of them believe the word of God. Not even all of them go to synagogue. They're Jews by blood, but many of them don't even care about the temple. But the orthodox do. Why? Because they hear or read and study the Word of God, the Hebrew Scriptures. Now they have missed Jesus in it. And he's throughout, from Genesis to to Malachi, Jesus is there. And they missed it. But God said they would not see it. But many are beginning to see it. There is a move of the Holy Spirit in the nation of Israel today where Messianic congregations are growing. They're very small, but they're growing and they're coming to know Yeshua as their Mashiach, their Messiah, their Christ. So, praise the Lord. That's another sign. Christ is coming soon. His people's eyes are starting to open. Okay, so I get excited about that. We'll get back to the relevance of this temple momentarily, but let's, let's establish a historic timeline now concerning the temples built in the past. Now, the first temple, and I took that picture myself. No, I'm just kidding. Pastor Tom did, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding there, too. <laughs> That's just an artist's rendition of the first temple. And that was constructed during the reign of King Solomon, the son of David. And this monumental task uh, for building this temple took seven years to complete. And in 953 BC, this first temple was dedicated by Solomon himself. But this magnificent structure was short-lived, the reason being the spiritual decline of the nation of Israel. During Rehoboam's reign, which was Solomon's son, the nation was divided into northern and southern kingdoms. Judgment came, or judgments came first upon the northern kingdom of Israel because of their idolatry and all of their wickedness, as signified by the fact that there were no godly kings on their throne. You know, when you read about the kings in Israel, if you read about the kings of Judah, you find that there were some good kings and some bad kings. But when you read about the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, there are no good kings. Not one of them was good. And we, when we go to Israel, we go to the northern part of the, of the you know, over by the Galilee is the northern area of Israel. And uh, they take us to a site called Dan, or the, the, the uh, place where, where the tribe of Dan settled. And they were some of the most idolatrous people in the, in the nation of Israel. 
And that's where they had set up, you know, what they would consider their place of worship. And, and you get to see, you know, the excavations where they had actually set up uh, uh, altars to worship unto other gods, not the God of Israel. So none of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were, uh, were actually good. And so in 722 B.C., now remember, 953 B.C. is when the temple was built. 722 B.C., they were taken into captivity. That is, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Now, the southern kingdom of Israel, or which is called Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, where the temple was located, fared a little better than the northern kingdom in that some of the kings actually served the Lord. Uh, these being the good kings, you know, Josiah and a few others there, uh, Solomon, of course, and, and whatnot. But, but uh, well, Solomon was before the split. Uh, so, Azza, King Azza was a, was a good king. Jehoshaphat was another good king. But, but judgment fell upon the southern kingdom of Judah anyway. And that fell beginning in, in 606 B.C. So a few years later, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, laid siege upon the city of Jerusalem and placed a puppet king on the throne besides taking some captives and spoil back with him to Babylon. And because of various rebellions by these puppet kings, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed the city and the temple in 586 B.C. So in 586 B.C., the city and the temple were destroyed. Second Kings tells us about that. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the uh, captain of the guard and a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. And then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. So he kept some people there just to take care of the stuff, but not for themselves, but for, for Babylon's sake. So the first temple lasted only less than 400 years because of the idolatry of the people and their refusal to repent and to get right with God. Now, after 70 years of captivity were completed under the leadership of Zerubbabel, just under 50,000 Jews returned home and the second temple was completed in 517 B.C. Now very quickly, let me just say that the second temple was really just putting all the rocks that had been destroyed in the first temple, one on top of the other, just to kind of have a place where they could have a temple again. So in essence, the second temple was, was just uh, rebuilt by the, you know, with the same, pretty much with the same stones, you know. And uh, we're told in Ezra, in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6, now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Now, they, I, you know, when, when God's house is built, I mean, we should rejoice. 
You know, when, when the Lord allowed us the opportunity to build this place nine years ago, almost nine years ago, seemed like yesterday, but almost nine years ago, oh, we just rejoiced. We rejoiced because God is so good. He gave us an opportunity to have a place where we could just meet and enjoy uh, the Word of God and the, the worship of God. And, and this is kind of in reverse, because if you had been here before we built this, and, and been with, that, with us in that little building up in front, you say, yeah, that was the one that looked like it was rebuilt, you know. And then God gave us this one. So, praise the Lord for that. But the temple that we're talking about, the second temple now, could not compare to the glory of Solomon's temple in no way, shape, or form. First of all, Solomon's temple had all of the adornments on it, but the Babylonians took all of that and burned it away, and, you know, Mostly they burned it so they could take the gold and everything else out. So, yeah, it didn't look very pretty anymore. It was strictly a low-budget construction project. But again, Ezra, a couple of chapters before, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 12 says, But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, all men who had seen the first temple, they had seen Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when, they, when, when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the, from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the, and the sound was heard afar off. So all this sound is going on, they said, boy, the people of, of Israel are rejoicing because of the temple, but a lot of them were crying because it just didn't look the same. They, they were weeping. They hadn't gone beyond the fact that they had, they had another temple. This really was their second temple. And they said, oh, the beauty of the other temple. Somebody had to remind them, hey, listen, remember the tabernacle out in the wilderness? It's just a big tent. And is it a matter of how beautiful the stone is, or is it a matter that God said, where you build this temple, I'll be there. The ones who rejoiced realized that was a place where they would meet with God. So those who witnessed the glory of the first temple were brought to tears at the non-glorified nature of the structure. And yet many rejoiced at the new temple because it was truly a matter of the heart and not the outward appearance. Well, then in 167 BC, getting closer to the time of Jesus on this earth, uh, this second temple was desecrated. It was desecrated by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, or some pronounce it Antiochus Epiphanes. But it's Antiochus Epiphanes. He slaughtered a pig on the altar. Well, a pig, of course, was, a, was an unclean animal. So it was done in spite of the Jewish people and of their, of their, of their law and of their... Of their practices of, of worship and then they play he placed a pagan temple I should say a pagan image in the Holy of Holies and the image was the image of no that's I don't get ahead of myself let's wait hold on to that thought it's another image it was the pagan image of the Seleucid you know, gods. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm thinking of AD 70 uh, when it was de- the temple was desecrated again. But we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. We're almost there, by the way. So anyway, so they, they had this pagan image in the Holy of Holies. And this idol that was set up was known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation. 
And we're going to talk about that phrase. You're going to see it in the scripture. The abomination of desolation. So approximately 100 years later, Israel fell to the Romans in 63 B.C. And in 37 B.C., an Idumean, which means he was from the stock of or a descendant of Esau and from Edom. So it's called an Idumean. His name was Herod. And he was called Herod the Great. And he was appointed king over Israel by Rome. He was considered by historians to have been a brilliant builder. He, he really loved building massive structures. And a lot of people thought that he liked that because he had this complex because he was only about five feet tall. So he was a short guy and he just felt like, you know, he had to build big buildings so that, you know, make him look and feel bigger than he was. But in 20 BC, Herod, trying to get in good graces with the Jewish people, he started an enlargement of the second temple. And this project continued on during the life of Christ and was finally finished in 63 AD, some seven years before it was destroyed by the Romans again. Now I have to mention that um, this is still the second temple because Herod's temple is not recognized as a third temple. It is just kind of an enlargement of the second temple. So don't think that the third temple was already built. It wasn't. Herod's temple was twice the size as the first. It was extravagant in the way it was built. Far beyond really the, uh, uh, the measurements given to us of the first temple of Solomon. Went way beyond that. So this was a massive structure for his own glory. That's why it's not recognized as a, as, as a third temple. But it was just Herod's temple, you see. And that's what it was called. And of that temple, we're told of this by Jesus. It says, And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. It, this was still an ongoing project in, in 30, about 33 A.D. And so they said, look at this beautiful place. Look at those stones. You get to see those stones, by the way, when you go to Israel. We go down and we see, uh, you know, the bedrock. of, uh, and, and some of the stones are massive. You know, from that wall there, one of them goes about past that wall right there. I mean, that, that's one stone. You, you, you get to see that when you go. I mean, I'm really getting you guys to go, right? Come on. I need you guys to sign up and get going. But anyway, so they're saying, look at the, look at the size of these stones. Look at the beauty of them. But Jesus said this to them. He said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And when they finally excavated the area of the temple, there was not one stone upon another. When you see stones now there today, there's stone upon stone because they just moved them on top. But when they found them, there was not one stone. Just as Jesus said. Now as we shall see a third temple now, the tribulation temple, we'll call it, must be built. And it is still future. And as we look at the scriptures, we shall see that a literal temple must be built during the tribulation period on the temple mount, in the heart of Jerusalem, in the heart of Israel. So that is significant. Why? Because it's not symbolic. 
There is a place called Israel. And in Israel there is a place called Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem there is a place called the Temple Mount. And it is on the Temple Mount that that temple is going to be built. And some people are saying, but what about, what about the mosque? And what about the Dome of the Rock? You got to come back next week for that. But I'll talk to you a little bit about it here in a moment. Let's look at verse 1 again. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of, the, of God. Notice the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now that's interesting, it's called the temple of God. It's only called the temple of God because it is in Israel, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. But as we will find out next time, God is allowing it so that all these other prophecies will take, will take place and be fulfilled. But it's not the worship of God. What do I mean by that? They are going to restart all the sacrifices. Now some Christians, you know, have some messianic tendencies. You know, they get excited. Oh, the sacrifices again. Hey, wait a minute. Jesus already came. The one true sacrifice has been done. No sacrifice is necessary any longer. But you see, the Jews haven't had their eyes open to Jesus yet. Who's being dealt with in these seven years? The church? The church is not here. The tribulation saints? No, they just got saved during this seven-year period. Who is God dealing with to get them right so that they can be saved? The Jews. The Jewish people who missed Jesus the first time. Will they not see Him? What does it tell us in Zechariah? What does it say in the first first chapter of Revelation? Every eye shall see Him. But in Zechariah, the Jews are going to see Him and they will weep. Why? Because they'll recognize who He is. And they missed him the first time. So understand that the worship is not about the true worship of God. They're sacrificing again animals, which is kind of an interesting thing because this is being in the future and we're living at a time when we have PETA around, you know, the, these groups that are protecting animals. They don't mind killing babies, but they they'll protect animals and whales and all kinds of other things. So that's going to be an interesting thing when it happens, but we're not going to worry about that for now. And then it says, But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city under the foot for for 42 months. Now, I have to to interject this real quickly here, because I I told you I'd be talking about this next week, but I've got to talk talk to you about it now. A little bit. A teaser. You don't mind if I give you a little teaser here. See? Because when you think about it, the court outside of the temple, how is that temple going to get on that temple mount? If the Arabs are the ones there, if the Muslims are kind of, kind of controlling that area. Well, that's where the Antichrist comes in later. Who makes a seven-year pact with Israel. I have, I have told you, keep an open mind 
about the fact that this Antichrist is not European. Like a lot of people have said. Oh, he's coming out of Europe. He's coming out of the, the ten, you know. Keep an open mind. Who is Jesus going to come and judge when he comes in the last days? If you read the book of Isaiah and the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who is he judging? Every nation that is mentioned of whom Jesus comes to judge is a Muslim nation. An interesting thought. Who's on the Temple Mount today? Even though Israel has control of Jerusalem, they give the Temple Mount to the Arabs who are mostly Muslim. And yet there's this little space between the dome and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Do we need a humongous, humongous uh, Solomon or, or Herod's temple there? No. That's what I'll talk about next time. But here I'm just trying to get you to think about where we're at here. So I got a few more minutes and actually I got a lot more pages. So I'm going to give you as much as I can. All right. Well, John is given a measuring rod or a reed. It is called kalamos in the Greek. Kalamos. And in the Hebrew it is kenechamida. And it's based, and I mention the Hebrew because we have to get the length of it here in just a moment. But it's based on the measurement for a cubit given in Ezekiel 40 verse 5. And the rod would be approximately then about 9 to 10 feet long, thereabouts in that area. Because a cubit is, is, is approximately from here to here, 18 inches. That's how they measured a cubit. And it's, it's uh, in uh, Ezekiel 40, verse 5, it is six cubits. And therefore, it's about nine, between nine and ten feet, thereabouts. And with this measuring instrument, John is told to measure the temple proper and not the whole structure of the temple. Now, the word for temple here is the Greek word naos, N-A-O-S, naos. And it speaks of the holy place and the holy of holies, the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holy of holies. And this is the area where the priests would go, where only the priests could go. And in contrast, we also have the Greek word Hieron, which speaks of the whole structure of the temple. We're going to talk about that actually more next time. Uh, but John didn't use that verse which speaks of the whole structure. He just uses the word that speaks of the holy of holies and the holy place. The entrance and the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. In effect, if we follow the scriptures, you only need 2,700 square feet for that. And it doesn't seem hard to think that a contract or a covenant could be made with someone who is overseeing now, uh, given this, this great power to make a covenant with Israel for them to have a temple. The, the temple being the sanctuary. Remember we used the word sanctuary earlier in the prayer? It, it, it's only about that place. The holy place of God. 
בקודש הקודשים, ב-holy of holies, holy, קודש. Everybody say קודש. קודש. Say הקודשים. הקודשים. Now say קודש הקודשים. קודש הקודשים. That is the holy of holies. But this will become important for us next time. Okay? So now you get your Hebrew lesson and you get all the you know, history lesson and all of that. In the Old Testament, and I'm so thankful that you all are being so attentive to me because this is a lot of, of, of foundation that we need to have before we understand the whole of the chapter. So I thank you all for doing that. But the concept of measuring, measuring the temple, gives an indication of ownership, of protection and preservation. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43 is an extended passage where the millennial temple is measured. That would be actually not this temple, but the temple that Jesus will enter at the end. It doesn't take anything for Jesus to make a temple for himself to come in. So we'll talk about that later too. In Zechariah chapter 2, a man measures Jerusalem in anticipation of God's coming judgment. In Revelation chapter 21, the new Jerusalem itself is measured. But when Habakkuk prophesied, the prophet Habakkuk prophesied in chapter 3 verse 6 of his prophecy, he said this, speaking of God, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. So the idea now, Measurement takes place in the scriptures. But the idea was that the Lord owns all of the earth and can do it and can do with it the earth as he pleases. That is the idea of the measuring. He's not measuring because he wants to know. He knows already. It is to show he knows every inch of that place and he can do with what he has created as he pleases. He can do with it as He pleases. So when this temple in Revelation 11 is measured, it reveals that God knows its every dimension, and He is in total charge and in total control. And that the Lord is in charge is one of the great themes of the book of Revelation. We've touched upon it a lot so far. You know, God is in control of all these things. God is not puzzled by all the things that are going on today. God is not puzzled with what's going on in Egypt today. He's not puzzled with what's happening uh, in Iran today. He's not puzzled about what's happening in the Middle East or, or even in our own nation. He was quite aware of it because he saw the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Because he sees from the perspective of eternity. Which is the way we will see things once we get to heaven, but not now. But we can trust in the God who has seen all things from beginning to end. So look ahead, if you will, to chapter 11, verse 17, where it says, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. What does he say? Or what do they say? Lord, you have taken control. You're in charge. You reign. You reign even now. God reigns even right this minute. He's in control. The word used for almighty there, by the way. I remember almighty in Hebrew is El Shaddai. God Almighty. But here in the Greek, the Greek word is Pantokrator. 
Pantocrator. And it describes the one whose hand is on everything. That's kind of literally, you know, what that means. His hand is on everything. Of the ten times that the word Pantocrator is used in the New Testament, nine of those are used in the book of Revelation. Nine times out of ten, the word Almighty is used in the book of Revelation. So what is that saying? God's in control. Alright, we got that. I hope we got that concept now. So this temple is going to be a scene of both great horror, because the judgments are still yet to come, and also great glory. But our God is in charge of it all. Now, if the temple in Revelation is supposed to be a symbolic representation of the church, why should it be, why should it be measured? Let's get, to that, let's get back to that. And ask the question, if the temple is the church, or symbolic representation of the church, why should it be measured? If the church is the temple, what is the significance of the courts and the altar? Why why are all of these things mentioned? They're mentioned because they're real. They're going to be real. They were real when when the, the first temple was made by Solomon. There were courts and there were altars. There is a Jerusalem again in the heart of Israel and in the heart of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount and in the Temple Mount will be the heart of the worship of the Jewish people because they want the Temple again. But what's interesting, if we go back to to that verse that we've been reading where he says that he measures the Temple, the altar, and those who worship here. Isn't that an interesting statement? Why measure the worshipers, those who worship there, if the church is the temple? You see? It doesn't make sense. If the church is symbolic of the temple, or the temple, I should say, is symbolic of the church, I should say. Why measure worshipers if the worshipers are the temple? There is an Israel. In Israel there is Jerusalem. In Jerusalem there is a temple mount. We don't need symbolism. We have the real thing. Okay. Have I driven that point home now? All night long I've driven it home. So you see, there is too much specific detail mentioned in just these first two verses of this section to make the church this tribulation temple. So then why must this temple be on the earth at this time in the future? Could it be for the fulfillment of what Daniel, Jesus, and Paul said about the abomination of desolation? I'm going to have to leave, with you, leave pretty soon. I'm going to take a few more minutes. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into this abomination of desolation because it's necessary for us to understand. So turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to see a few verses in Daniel chapter, uh, well, Daniel chapters 9, 11, and 12. But in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and you'll notice it says Daniel 9, 27a, because this is a real long verse, so I had to split it up up here. But in Daniel 9, 27a, and we're going to look at this thing about the abomination of desolation. It says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That is the Antichrist, who we call the Antichrist, it's called the beast, but it is this son of perdition, as it were. 
He shall confirm a covenant with the many. There, there is in the Hebrew the article the. With the many for one week. For The week is, is just for a seven period of time, which we know to be seven years. And we talked about that. We'll deal with that again in another time. But it comes out to seven years. So that one week is dealing with seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years go by, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, he breaks his side of the covenant. And it says, and on the wing of abominations, you see that word abominations, on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate. That is why this is called the abomination of desolation. The, on the wing of abominations or desecrations, uh, and there's a number of words that we, we can put in there of this outrage, of, of this detestable or disgusting, filthy, idolatrous stuff. On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation or the fulfillment thereof, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Ah, that's a lot of words there. And then in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, verse 31 of Daniel, it says, And forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. So now, defiled by the Antichrist or the beast, and, and, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and then they shall take away the daily sacrifices. Now, remember what I said about the temple doesn't have to be some large thing with a whole bunch of buildings. It just needs to be the place of sacrifice, which they call the sanctuary. So, you see how that works there? And then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, go to the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Speaking of the rest of the tribulation period. Jesus talked about it himself in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, there are interesting directions given to people who will be there at the time that this takes place. How many of you live in Jerusalem today? Not any of you. That's right. That's good. Good answer. Don't raise your hand. You live in El Paso, Texas. It looks a little like over there, but it isn't over there. There will be people living there. Is that symbolic? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is it symbolic? Not at all. It's a real place, a real temple. Some real abomination is going to be taking place. And he tells the Jews of that time, when you see this, you better take off. And, you go, and read the rest of it. That's your homework. Read the rest of Matthew 24 from, from that place, from verses 16 on. And the things that he tells them to do, because how many of you are going to have to go through that? None of you. By the way, none of you, because you're not even here anyway. Even if you move to Jerusalem tomorrow, you won't be going through that, because the church will be out of the way. So, all right. You got that. Verse 21, now go jump down there. For then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, that's yet to come. And we think it's bad now. We think it was bad when we read about, you know, the famines and everything else that is yet to take place. 
early on in the, in the seven-year tribulation period? And he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. There will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning. That means even going back to the flood. Paul chimes in on this. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Uh, we can talk a lot about what that falling away might be. It is the word apostasia. There is an apostasy here, but there's some indication that that could also be talking about the rapture, but we're not going to deal with that tonight. Uh, and the man of sin is revealed. Who is that? The Antichrist. He's called here the man of sin. He's called the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, which is what Daniel said and which is what Jesus has said, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that's going to be an interesting study if we just studied that by itself, because then we would have to consider some issues with Islam and with Allah, and with what is called the Mahdi, the uh, supposed uh, return of, of Allah, or uh, the a greater prophet, as it were, and whatnot. Uh, we're not going to deal with that again. But I'm just trying to whet your appetite about next time, because there's a lot to talk about. Oh, we want to go there yet. Okay. Anyway, we're almost done. So this idea uh, or concept of the abomination of desolation itself is often spiritualized by the explanation given as some sort of idolatrous worship established in the heart of, of God's people, which, remember, they say is His temple. And so you really can't call God's, or you can't call people God's temple if they're worshiping the Antichrist. <laughs> you, know, so you can't do that. Uh, because Antichrist is the emissary of Satan himself. The simplest and the best explanation then is that all these passages foretell a real Jewish temple to be built in Jerusalem. Okay, I, I can go ahead and finish now. In, in our next study, I want to deal with the probable location of the tribulation temple as it relates to verse 2 of our text. So I want to give you a word of encouragement tonight, and I want to leave you with this. Because Jesus said to his followers, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am you may be also <laughs> isn't that wonderful isn't that an encouragement after hearing all of that other stuff that's where we'll be. And where's Jesus? You see, when Jesus does come again, His second coming, His visible second coming, it says He comes with us. We come with Him. We come following Him. We come with Him. And He says, and where I go, you know. You know. And the way you know. Y'all know the way, right? Y'all know the way?
Jesus, Jesus said to a disciple who was just having a little problem understanding. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the way. You got to know Jesus. You need to know Jesus. So until then, what are we to be? Until then, we need to be the temple. (laughs) We are the temple of God, folks. Right now. Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. If Jesus is the cornerstone, when does the building get detached from the cornerstone? And remains on the earth if the cornerstone is in heaven. Hello? If somebody says, well, if the mention of the saints in, in, verse, uh, in verse 19, you know, you're no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, then we say that the saints were different than the church? No, we're talking about the saints that came before us. All those who believed in Jesus before us. Who are the saints today? We are. <gasps> All right. Oh, praise the Lord. Let's pray. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus.